Romans. That's where we're going to be this morning, Romans chapter 12. I'm going to get right to work and begin actually in verse 3 and read the entire chapter following. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, this is God's Word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one, one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, and do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be conceited. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We would do well to read that passage many times in our lifetime, perhaps many times each week. There's a lot of instruction in there. I'm not going to hit every part of it, but the parts that apply to what we are talking about this morning. We're continuing in our Together sermon series, which is a series for the local church about the local church. Specifically, it's a series organized around our membership covenant, and that's a strange word. We explained it in the introduction to our series. You should go back and listen if you haven't heard it. But a covenant is a special kind of commitment to a special kind of relationship. Perhaps a covenant relationship is best described as being one that is more loving and intimate than just a legal relationship, but it's more binding and enduring and even accountable than just a personal relationship. The value of a series about this kind of thing cannot be overstated, especially in the place we find ourselves today. Recent events over the last year have revealed a lot about what we believe, especially what we believe, we being very general, about the church. In the past year, the need to be and desire to be a part of a local church has either grown exponentially for someone or it has diminished greatly. See, our forced dependence on all things digital that has either accelerated our consumerism and made the local church more insignificant than ever, or it has revealed the emptiness of all things virtual and made the church 
the local church more essential than ever in our lives. One of two things has probably happened to most people. If real life connection is really no longer matters, then it's unlikely that real membership in a real church matters either. But I'm here to tell you I believe real connection does really matter and is really important to our lives. And our text in Romans 12 this morning is going to help us further understand how God desires us to be connected to one another in a particular kind of commitment to one another. Our covenant commitment has several promises, and that's what each sermon represents is one of those promises. This morning, we are going to talk about this promise. This is in our covenant. We say it in every one of our members' meetings. It says, we will rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrow. This promise is largely connected with verse 15 of what I read in chapter 12, which famously says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is part of our covenant commitment. And although the word is not used in this covenant commitment or in this particular text, the verse describes a concept that I want to talk about this morning called empathy or the ability to empathize. One's a noun, one's a verb for you former English students. Arguably, empathy is one of the most important elements found in relationships. And a lack of empathy, which you or I might have, makes it very hard to engage in a meaningful relationship with anyone. Empathy. Now, you might not know what that is, so I'll try to color it in for you. Empathy, by the definition of various dictionaries, probably says something like this. It will be described as a mental identification with or some kind of vicarious experiencing of someone else's feelings, someone else's thoughts, or even someone else's attitudes. The word actually originates from a Greek word. I think it's empathia, but don't quote me because I am not a Greek scholar. But that word means physical affection, actually, or even passion. Essentially, empathy is the ability to emotionally understand what another person is feeling, seeing from their point of view, imagining yourself in their place. It is a natural ability. In other words, we all have some level of empathy, but it's also a conscious choice to put yourself in someone else's position to feel what they feel. Empathy ensures, as I said, that a relationship is actually meaningful versus, I would argue, superficial. Empathy is also important in that it helps us understand how to respond to a person's particular situation. There's a lot of research that shows the greater empathy someone has 
the greater amount of help they actually can provide or even want to provide. One particular leader in emotional intelligence said it this way, true compassion means not only feeling another's pain, but also being moved to help relieve it. So it's not just feeling, there's some action that's inspired by it. Now, Jesus is the example of empathy, truth be told. He is the example of everything good. But he was the best at it. And as you read through the New Testament, you're not going to see words like empathy, but you are going to see words like compassion. Jesus was incredibly compassionate. Compassion and empathy both have to do with that passion or that feeling for another person because of their experience, usually that of suffering. True empathy is the feeling of in some way actually beginning to participate in that suffering or the joy of another person. Perhaps the closest we get to that like naturally not having to try, is our children. But even there we can struggle. Jesus was always sensitive to the plight of others. And several times in the Bible, Jesus described as just seeing the crowds. Usually they were crowds that were in great need, and the text will say, and he felt compassion for them. Sometimes, Having compassion on them, the text will also say it, ca- it caused his heart to overflow with compassion. He had a true visceral response to the suffering around him, whether it be hunger, whether it be sickness, whether it be spiritual lostness, if you will. Dane Ortland wrote a great book called Gentle and Lowly. You should all read it. He said it this way, twice in the Gospels we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or for his pains. In both cases it's sorrow over another. In one case, Jerusalem, and in another, his deceased friend Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? The tears of of others. Jesus was the example of empathy. And if Jesus is the last Adam and the portrait of perfection, everything Adam was supposed to be that he was not, insofar as we mature in Christ, we should become more empathetic and more compassionate. I'm not sure that's the first character quality that we think about when we speak of being conformed to the image of Christ. I think most of us think morally. But if you've been a Christian a long time and you're not growing in empathy, there's something perhaps for you this morning that you need to hear. Because as we look out in the world, And even the church, and perhaps even individual families, I don't know if I'm seeing an increase of empathy. 
For me, just from my perspective, and I'm sure you could find articles either contradictory or supporting me because Google is the great fine people who believe the same thing you do tool. But it seems like from my perspective, the world is becoming less empathetic. And what we have to come to a place of understanding is that a lack of empathy in us as Christians is actually falling short of what God has for us. And I would argue that a lack of empathy is also falling short of who He calls us to be as a community. Now, most humans are born with a capacity to empathize, but there are those of us who struggle with that. I am one of those people. I won't tell you what I scored on an empathy test many years ago. I think we were higher today, but I would just humbly offer that it possibly was a very small number on the scale of a very probably large number. <laughs> My wife famously will tell me when our kids are upset, when they're in sorrow, there's a funny phrase, and she could tell you exactly what it is. It is empathy first. Because my natural inclination is to tell the kid to, you'll be fine. Let me tell you why you shouldn't have gotten in that situation and you hurt yourself. But she's always like, empathy first. Empathy first. Because those other things might be true and might need to be said, but I don't struggle with saying those other things. I struggle with empathy. Now, others seem very gifted with empathy. But I've learned that most people can learn to empathize. We can grow in empathy. But as I said, generally our culture seems to be like becoming less empathetic, decreasing in their empathy, at least on a personal and social level even. So what does a lack of empathy look like? Well, tell me like if this sounds familiar. Not to you, because I'm sure this has nothing to do with you, but just like what you see, because we see and hear a lot in the world today. A person who lacks empathy jumps to criticize others first without putting themselves in another's shoes. They seem to be cold or just out of touch with people who are suffering or less fortunate. A person who lacks empathy believes in 100% the rightness of their own ideas and beliefs and judges anyone who does not believe 100% the way they do as wrong, dumb, or evil. A person who lacks empathy has Trouble feeling happy and celebrating with others. A person who lacks empathy has trouble keeping friends or even getting along with their own family members. A person who lacks empathy feels entitled, especially to receiving favors, and often use people to serve their needs without showing appreciation. They'll often get offended if they don't get their way. A person who lacks empathy in a group setting, will talk a lot about themselves and their own lives without really caring about what other people share. They'll have many declarations and very few questions. 
And a person who lacks empathy, generally speaking, will often say or do something that hurts a friend or loved one and then tend to blame that person's hurt on that person as being too insensitive or too sensitive, I should say. For me, that describes a lot of what I see going on in the world. People are very convinced 100% of what they believe. They struggle very much with identifying with anyone who's not like them, but especially who is suffering. And they tend to make many declarations and ask very few questions. Now, more than likely, if we're honest, which I know is difficult for every human being, this list describes us in some way, all of us maybe in some way, and I believe regardless that we can all grow in the area of empathy because we all should want and can have better, more meaningful relationships. And this is one of the keys. I believe being empathetic is part of being human, but it's also part of being a member of a church, a people. Research proves that we most easily empathize, however, with people who are like us. Even if that person is suffering or rejoicing, but in ways that we already share and can identify with, it's very difficult for us to empathize with anyone who's different than us or is perhaps experiencing something that we have not experienced. In other words, naturally, affinity feeds empathy. So you don't, if you don't have a natural affinity with somebody, it's going to struggle, you're going to struggle, we're going to struggle to be empathetic with what they're experiencing. Because we're like, why are you experiencing that? It took me a while to understand that my teenagers were going to experience school differently than I did. Right? They start struggling in ways I never struggled. I'm like, what's your problem? This is how I did. Oh, it's about me. I'm not stepping into their experience. I'm not even assuming they're a different person. I'm assuming they're the same as me. And therefore, they shouldn't be struggling the way that they're struggling because I didn't. That's not empathetic in case you're wondering. And it's probably pretty crappy parenting. The problem is that if affinity feeds empathy, okay, this is going to be a newsflash, we're not all the same here. And yet he gathers us together in this place, people with very different stories that produce in us very different preferences and personalities and passions. And he says, get along. And so we're either going to have to work to truly connect with one another or we're going to have to do some really good pretending. Because the truth is, we can gather in a shared place and commit to a shared confession and even have shared practices, but if we don't have actually shared empathy, then our relationships will remain empty, superficial, and disingenuous. And who wants to hang out with a group of people like that? So how do we, how do we grow in empathy? How do we pursue a greater empathy? Fantastic question. Consider our text again, just the first couple verses. For by the grace given to me, beginning in verse 3, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. There's some irony in this. That your disposition towards other is actually dependent on your view and disposition towards yourself. That's where Paul begins. My empathy is actually going to be governed by how I view myself in some way. So the pursuit of greater empathy, therefore, must actually begin with a greater self-reflection. Paul warns Christians not to think too highly than you ought to think. We should always be aware or consider the warnings Paul gives us because we're likely to actually do the very thing he's warning us against. Paul can say this because he says grace was given to him. Grace. Like, Don't think too highly of yourself. And he says this because grace has been given to me, to him. Grace, as we know, is undeserved favor. Undeserved because Paul knows, we know, that we are less than we are supposed to be. Whether we want to describe that as brokenness or rebellion, either one's fine with me. Probably should be both. Rather than sinners saved by grace, those who think too highly of themselves tend to view themselves somewhat pridefully as God's lucky to have me on his team. So think about that, right? Man, I got this Christian thing figured out. Good thing I'm godly and righteous, unlike the ungodly, struggling people around me. So think about that. Too highly, that's pretty extremely high, but too highly. This view will begin to impact how you view others, especially their suffering and even their celebration. If we view ourselves as those who have earned it, as those who have arrived unlike others because of how awesome you are, you will naturally look down on other people who aren't as awesome as you. We'll end up perceiving people's suffering as avoidable. Well, you shouldn't have got yourself in that situation. Sucks to be you. And it's great to be me. We may also view someone's success differently. If we think too highly of ourselves, we won't go, wow, that person is really gifted. That person had what awesome opportunity and what hard work. They'll go, eh, they got lucky. They had advantages that other people didn't have. And you'll begin to resent a person's success because of some unfair advantage you perceive. Isn't that interesting? A view of ourselves begins to impact how we view others. We will struggle to feel what they feel because of how we feel about ourselves. Too highly. Well, we can also make the mistake, though Paul doesn't note that, of thinking too lowly of ourselves. This is a place not of pride, but of despair. And this, again, as I'm perceiving myself, begin to have a kind of a victim mentality. 
Those who think lowly of some, themselves tend to covet a lot. Now, let's be honest. We all covet a lot, though it's not the commandment we usually bring to the forefront. I've never had anyone confess to me they're coveting, strangely. But when we feel lowly, we tend to look out and go, I want that, I wish I had that, I wish I was like that. We covet a lot, which our social media feeds very well. And we struggle to be grateful for what we have because we're so focused on what we don't. With a mindset on our own suffering and very little else, we struggle to even acknowledge the suffering of another, and we feel depressed when others succeed and we don't. We don't go, they were lucky. If I had that, I could have done it. We go, I don't have what they have. They're so much more awesomer than I am. So as Tim Keller has famously taught, we're not to think ourselves or think less of ourselves. We're just to think of ourselves less. When we think of ourselves, Paul says, you need to think rightly about yourself. See, in our relationships, and I mean all this, we tend to kind of navigate this tension between feeling inferior and superior. Back and forth, one or the other. And this kind of mindset ends up just keeping distance between people because you've judged this person as inferior or superior to you and it's not going to help you connect. Because if they're above or below you, they're not next to you. Makes sense. We struggle to feel rightly about others because we're struggling to feel rightly about ourselves. And so he calls us to a sober judgment. And what is a sober judgment? Honestly, I think at the core, it could be many things, but I think at the core, it's we embrace the story that has shaped us, the passions that guide us, even the measure of faith that makes us as having been assigned by God. My story has been assigned by God. My passions and personality has been assigned by God. Even my faith and the strength or the difference in it has been assigned by God. In some way, this is recognizing the strengths and the gifts that you have, but it's also recognizing the ones that you don't and being okay with that. As we self-reflect and recognize how God has made me, not you, me, like how God has made me, we also recognize how God has not made me. But perhaps how he has made others in relationship to me. There's a shift. Begin to maybe, dare I say, because it sounds almost sinful in our world, like to love yourself a little bit. Love how God made you a little bit. I wonder if that will help you. I think it will help you appreciate and love others a little bit more. In other words, part of that connecting with one another is beginning to see who you are and to begin to see the need you have for connection. As Paul writes, we are not just members, right? We're individually members and members of one another. So as Paul continues, and again, I'm going to kind of hit some points here, appreciating how you are wonderfully and fearfully made and then recognizing I got a need for connection because I'm not everything, that produces an affection 
for this people that you're with, particularly, particularly for those who are different than you. It's easy to appreciate someone who's the same as you, same strength, same giftedness, all right, as long as you don't feel like inferior to them because they've gotten really good and you don't. But I actually think it helps to view those people who actually don't have an affinity with even more greatly. Because instead of competition for the same things, they become viewed as complements in the same body. And that's the difference. Paul continues in verse 9 saying, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with a brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. He calls us to have a genuine love, which means a love without hypocrisy. If you cannot arrive at a place of genuine affection for someone who is different than you, then I would argue you need to go back to self-reflection and start again. The problem isn't with the difference in people. The problem is with you and how you view yourself. God does not desire for us to have a disguised love or fake it till you make it kind of experience. He desires for us to have a genuine affection for one another. Not everyone, but for one another, for others. Where we genuinely acknowledge our unity with this person despite our lack of affinity. Like this person who's so different than me, man, we, we think so differently. We react and emote at things so differently. Man, I love you. Not because you're the same, but because you're so different. Dare I say I even need you. As much as I get irritated at the things that, that you are excited about, and I'm not, that helps me. So follow along. In verse 10, Paul's going to again say, love one another with a brother. So he says, let love be genuine. And he says again, let love one another with a brotherly affection. So he likens this affection as family. He's using family language here. A mutual love that's based on this natural connection. Now, practically speaking, I know what you guys are going to think when I say this. Practically speaking, for better or worse, we do not choose our family members. You get what you get. For better or worse. And every family has some weirdos. And catch this. No one ever thinks they're the weirdo. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, our family's got some weirdos. Well, your family's having conversations with you out there going, our family's got some weirdos. <laughs> and they're talking about you. But despite that, right, despite some of the weirdos, despite some of the difficulties 
and the differences when all is said and done, we say to ourselves, well, we're family. We're family. Theologically speaking, so that's practically speaking, theologically speaking, God chooses our families. And He never, ever chooses wrongly. This is true not only as it affirms the value of every member of our earthly family, as bewildering as that is, but also a spiritual family like the church. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. What a powerful statement. He arranges it. He puts families together and He puts churches together. So, in between these huge statements of love, let love be genuine, and love one another, brotherly affection, you have this interesting phrase, very strong phrase, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That's weird. Now, taken by itself, we're like, okay, that might mean something, but positioned in between those statements, it might mean something else. The Greek word for abhor is used only one time by Paul in the New Testament right here. It carries the meaning of at least dislike and at most a sense of hatred, but generally this idea of separation, a separate. Evil can mean wicked, but it can also mean Annoyance or hardship even. Now, I am not a scholar, and I admit that. But this feels like a really honest relational statement. Especially appropriate for family members, you know, the weirdos. I mean, when I think of my family, I love them all, but there's a few things I don't like about them. And if you're a parent, you understand exactly what I mean. I love them unconditionally. A few things, yeah, that's kind of annoying. Now, the temptation, at least I think in a church family, is to reject those people altogether because of that annoyance. I want nothing to do with them. Now, you can't really do that with family, per se. Like, they're there. They're going to be there no matter what. So perhaps this is an invitation to honestly acknowledge those annoyances, but not to dwell on them. To passionately hold fast to what is good. What is good about that person in your life? Because, right, it, how, how easy is it to dwell on like, ah, I don't like that. That's why I don't want to spend time with you. That's why I want to be separate. What if you could separate that and go, but I love this. Because the truth is, we're going to dislike 10 to 15% of anyone about anything. 
but can we hold fast to that which is good for the purpose of connection? I think refusing to choose this kind of love, and it is a choice, choosing to see people this way is going to hinder our ability to empathize and to actually be hospitable to them, to draw them close. We'll often fail to rejoice in their joy because they seem to make our life a suffering. And so we'll keep our distance. But that's not what Paul is calling us to. If we are able to actually reflect rightly about ourselves and begin to view other people with a sense of affection as having, I, you know, I, I, I actually need you in my life, even though you're so different than me, we take a step closer, and then we are able to actually empathize and feel what they feel when especially they suffer. Like, if you're not viewing yourself right, and you're not viewing others right, there's no way you're going to feel anything. It, it's kind of like fulfilling marriage vows, right? Sometimes it's easy. But other times it requires some discipline. Like sometimes it's easy to be, oh, I'm so happy. Sometimes it's easy to like, oh, I want to feel. And this is natural. I don't find other times it takes some discipline. Discipline to rejoice with each other's happiness, as our commitment says, to show sympathy and bear one another's burdens and sorrow. Truth be told, it usually takes less discipline to celebrate someone's happiness, but it still can. It certainly takes discipline at times to feel another's suffering. But it begins with desire. And it's not just a desire to feel for them, it's a desire to know them, to connect with them, and therefore a desire to feel what you're feeling because that means we're connected. Stepping into another's felt experience is how we connect with one another, and it's how we position ourselves to be helpful. And I would argue, here's the first practical step. Just being close to them. Just being present with them, especially in their suffering. Sometimes we don't know what to do. I've been a pastor for 15 years. When I first started, I encountered tremendous suffering, and I always felt like I had to bring a Bible verse or some kind. And what I learned very quickly is some of the most powerful things you can do is just be there. You know, Job is a book about tremendous suffering of one man and his family. Much of the book is a record, like the bulk of the book is actually a record of some of the foolish things his friends say to try and help. But what we sometimes overlook in the very beginning of the book, and I believe it's actually in the second chapter, is the most helpful thing they actually did was the first thing that they actually did. Here's what they did. They heard about his suffering and in Job 2, it records that they made an appointed together, made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. 
Like the friends got together and said, let's go be with Job. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him because he had bodily suffering as well, boils. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. That's empathy. Seven days they sat with him and said nothing. That's the first step. Loving another person well means entering their life like Christ entered ours. Getting close enough to feel. To feel a person's humanity. And to really be able to praise what is praiseworthy and to listen to the sorrow without judgment. This blesses tremendously as it satisfies one of our deepest needs just for connection. You know what showing empathy does? It's the thing that we don't really know we need until we don't have it. Showing empathy speaks to the soul. And here's what it says. I see you. I hear you. You're not alone. That's it. We're talking about a commitment. Like when we talk about our commitment as a church, it's a commitment to at least try to feel. It is not a commitment to fix. For some of us, fixing feels so much more comfortable. Fixing ultimately is Jesus' job. Our responsibility primarily is to feel with this other person. Fulfilling our responsibility requires somewhat of an invitational disposition where, honestly, there are more question marks in what we say than exclamation points. It's easier to throw out exclamation points. I don't think I have to give you an English lesson on what that means. Did you notice what Jesus typically does? Lots of questions. Too often we want people to rush past what they're feeling, and we often rush past what we're feeling, so that we can get on to more productive things. You feeling that? Okay, great, all right, now can we fix it? Consider this, that maybe, maybe the productive thing is actually connection. And that connection is going to require empathy. So as we close, one truly might find this kind of connection in the world, but guess what? We have to find it in the church amongst His covenanted people. Because being connected Being a Christian means you know Christ and you're endeavoring to live like Christ. Well, being connected with Christ then means living the incarnational kind of life that He lived. That's a big word, big theological term, incarnation. Like, And all that is saying is that Christ, the Son of God, didn't heal from a distance. 
He came so close that He became flesh. That He might connect with us personally. He might feel the fullness of humanity's experience. Hebrew 4 tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because in His humanness, He experienced it all. He was tempted and He struggled with the same things that we struggle with, with sorrow and suffering and hunger and loneliness and betrayal and all those things. So being Christ to one another means that we learn to engage in this ministry, I call it a ministry, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. When we think of ministry, I think we think of a lot of other more practical things. Perhaps this might be the most powerful thing you can do. But it really is not something we do per se, although it is. It's something that we are through faith in the gospel. Just to circle back, I didn't read the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Consider what they say. You probably, it'll ring familiar to you. Verse 1 and 2 of the same chapter, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know what's fascinating? At least to me. It's noteworthy that the verses that follow this call, this call to live a life of worship, to make these sacrifices, this call to have a, a mind transformation, transformation, a renewal, what follows that statement is a lengthy explanation about our relationships with one another. I'm not sure that's what our first thought is when we think of mind transformation. transformation. I'm going to renew my mind so that I think I'm... When you believe the gospel... It transforms your relationship with God, but that's not where it ends. It is designed to transform your relationship with each other. Jesus empathize, empathizes with us. Jesus delights with us. Jesus weeps with us that we might do that with one another. And honestly, in committing to empathy, in, in putting that peace into our membership covenant. This is what we're going to commit to. We may fail, we may fall short, but we're going to strive for this peace. In committing to empathy, you know what we're just calling everyone to do? Live like Jesus. And love like Jesus has loved you. It's that simple. And that powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You for how You have loved us. And we confess, Lord, we are not as good at it. Lord, would You help us to see ourselves rightly and see one another rightly that we might be able to feel what each other feels. And if, Lord, we don't have that desire, would You give us that desire? 
so that we will have meaningful relationships in this body. We might not know everybody, Lord, but we can know one another in intimate ways. Help us, Lord, to connect. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.